Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the ideas and books that have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Dr. Brian Julian is back with me to talk about Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Gil. For those in our audience where that previous sentence was a mouthful, Let's break down some key terms. Let's see. I said Anselm. Who is Anselm? Anselm is a philosopher and theologian that lived in England in the 11th century. He is famous for both philosophical arguments and theological positions. We're particularly focusing on the philosophy side here. On the theology side, he was also... In England, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So if you saw King Charles' coronation the other day, Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the Church of England who got to put the crown on him. So Anselm, I don't know if you ever got to crown anybody, but yeah. he, he held that position way a long time ago. Yeah. So I said ontological argument for the existence of God. What is ontology or things that are ontological? So that O-N-T stem, ont, comes from the Greek word for being. So if I study ontology, then I am looking at what it is to be, which is, of course, something that only philosophers worry about most of the time. We right. don't usually spend that much time worrying about what being is. But yes, there's a somewhat, somewhat famous joke about ontologies. It's... It's sort of nightmarish because all of your verbs are being verbs, which are sort of unwieldy at the best of times. Yes. Writing about ontology is a nightmare for an editor. Yes. Okay. So so this is an ontological argument for the existence of God. So that's looking at God's existence. Can you kind of break that down. How are you trying to look at God's existence there? So an ontological argument for God's existence is looking at God's being. What does it mean to be God? And we're going to be starting with a definition of God, actually, and this is what God is in Anselm's mind. And from there, we're going to be going from what God is to proving that God exists. So before we get into Anselm's specific ontological argument, could you give us an example of something that wouldn't be an ontological argument for the existence of God? Yeah, there's many different kinds of arguments for God's existence. Probably the one we're most familiar with is a cosmological argument, where we're looking at the cosmos, at the world. Again, cosmos comes from the Greek. The cosmological argument we're looking out at the world and features of the world, and we're using those features to argue that God exists. So these are the famous arguments like, oh, look, there's design, therefore there had to be a designer, or even there exists a world, so there had to be somebody who started it, or there's beauty or morality. We can pick lots of different features of the world, but a cosmological argument, we're picking a feature and then explaining that feature by saying God must exist. Okay, so just to be crystal clear, we're gonna be looking at an ontological argument, which isn't gonna be talking about, see this thing in the world, there must be a God. Rather, we're gonna be talking about, God must be this kind of thing, and that, in some way, proves that he exists. Exactly. Great. So let's talk specifically about Anselm's argument. Where do you want to start here? Okay, so we have to start with this definition of God, this idea of God's being. So this is one of those phrases that we're just going to have to get used to because we're going to have to use it over and over again. Uh -huh. But God for Anselm, we start with the definition that God is something than which nothing greater can be thought. Okay. God is something than which nothing greater can be thought. Is there a simpler way, or can you break that down for us? So in some senses, we're just trying to think of what's the 
best possible thing you can conceive of. Like, we think of all sorts of things, and you're trying to think of the very best thing possible. That thing where when you think of it, you can't try harder and think of anything better than it, anything greater than it. Why does Anselm think the sort of thing we're going to think of when we think of something than which nothing greater can be thought? Why does he think that's going to be something like God? And presumably because he's a Christian, he's thinking of some kind of spiritual being. Why is he thinking that's going to be the result of that thought instead of, say, a vacation to the Bahamas with, you know, an ice cream sundae and none of my children are around to sort of disturb the serene peace of the ocean and, you know, melty chocolate or whatever. Well, first of all, I'll go on that vacation with you. <laughs> and secondly, we're trying to think of the most perfect thing. I think partly just from the time period he's in and the influences, anything that's material is just automatically going to fail because the immaterial is going to be better than the material. Yeah, so the we, we talked with Elliot last podcast about Neoplatonism and their interest in sort of disassociating anything of value from the material world. So that's part of it. Does he think that part of this might have to do with Obviously, one of the things that is a really great thing is morally excellent. So if you are thinking of a being that is morally excellent, that's going to end up putting you in the ballpark, probably, of something like God. Yeah, moral excellence is going to have to be part of it. In the book where Anselm gives this argument, he actually goes on to try to deduce what are the properties of God. And so he's going to talk about some of the, you know, I forget exactly which ones he talks about, but, you know, God is going to be all good and probably all powerful and all knowing. And the kind of standard things that a lot of people would ascribe to God are these perfections. And that's what he's thinking about with this conception of a thing that we can't think of something that's greater. So... If I don't believe in God, is this sort of a non-starter? Like, if, as we've highlighted, if Anselm's time is one of the things that is affecting the direction that he's wanting to go with that which nothing greater can be thought, right? If I don't have the inclination to think of material things as bad... Can I still conceive of the idea that he's trying to go for here? So for Anselm, he's very emphatic. You do not have to believe that such a thing exists. Uh -huh. In his argument, he addresses the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Uh -huh. So this is the, this can be, an atheist can, in Anselm's view, understand the concept. And that's all that's needed is you have to understand what is this concept? What is this idea of that than which nothing greater can be thought? And he thinks that an atheist would be able to understand that idea. Yes. So we have this idea of something than which nothing greater can be thought. And hopefully everyone is still hanging with us as we keep using that phrase. What does Anselm do with this then? If we have this conception of the best possible thing we can conceive, how does that get us to proving God's existence? Or what's the next step that Anselm t takes in proving God's existence? Okay, so Anselm starts by saying that the person who has this understanding of the idea, whether it is a Christian who believes that such a being exists or an atheist who does not believe such a being exists. In either case, when they are thinking about this idea, when they are understanding it, it means that that then which nothing greater can be thought exists in the mind of the person thinking it. That there is 
some sort of existence that this thing has, and it exists in the person's mind. Okay, so what does that get him? Where does he go next with that? So if we have something that exists in our mind, and if we say that that's the greatest thing, so I have this idea, it exists in my mind, I'm saying this is the greatest thing I can possibly think about, Anselm says, well, actually, there's something even better that you could think about. There is something even greater. And that's if the thing existed in reality and not just in your mind. Okay. Okay. So let me try to think of examples of this. And maybe this is getting into the critique or whatever, but maybe it will highlight some things that are helpful. Presumably, there are a group of people, which I don't think either of us are part of, who like horror movies. And I imagine if one is a horror writer or the director of horror films, that one is constantly trying to conceive of a scary monster or a scary scenario that one could put in a film or in a book that would deliver whatever pleasures people who like horror stories <laughs> derive from such things. But presumably, they would not want that thing to exist in real life. So is that just totally decimating to Anselm's argument? What do you think he would respond to that picture? Is it the fact that we're not dealing with a less perfect thing that involves horribleness? What do you think he would say to that sort of discussion of conception and existence? Yeah, a common way to deal with that is to say that it is best for good things to exist and it is best for bad things not to exist. So if you have something really good it is better for it to exist than not exist. Like if I have a, you know, if I think about a winning lottery ticket, it would be better to have the actual winning lottery ticket <laughs> so that I can win the lottery. Although I've heard that actually ends up working not presuming, so well presuming, for people. But Presuming none of the real world consequences. <laughs> yeah, so, but you could take something else. Like you have all your family surrounding you. That is... A positive thing, it's better to have that actually happen. If you're stuck on a desert island and you're just thinking about it, it would be better if all of your family surrounding you were there in reality, whereas all your worst enemies who hate you and are out to murder you, it would be better if you were just thinking about them and they weren't existing around you in reality. Right. So it's this issue of this quality of existence conferring more goodness to the thing, right? This seems to be Anselm's move here, is if you could think of God, the move that he's making in the argument is you can conceive of something that's good, but if it doesn't have existence, if it's not real, it wouldn't be as good as that same thing if it were real. Exactly. Great. Is that the end of the proof, or are there any more concluding steps to what he's doing? So the key thing here is that we're thinking about a very particular thing. We're thinking about the greatest possible thing that could be thought. Uh-huh. So... In conceiving of that very idea, we are then required to add as much goodness as possible to it. Uh -huh. So because we're trying to think of the greatest possible thing, the thing where we can't think of anything greater than it, so we're required by that definition of the thing we're thinking of to ascribe existence to it for the sorts of reasons we were just talking about because that would be an even better thing if that thing existed in reality. Anselm has a reply to an objection. Somebody's like, what if I think of the greatest island? Does that mean that it also has to have existence? And I'm not sure if Anselm can get away with it, but at least his response is, 
my argument only works with this one very particular idea. Yeah. It has to be the greatest conceivable thing that I can't possibly think of anything greater than it. Right. Because in the island, what we mean by greater is presumably different from what we mean by great when we say greatest possible thing. There's a lot of qualities that that word is, I mean, frankly, obscuring. What does it mean for a thing to be greater? Well, apparently it means for it to exist. Among all of the other qualities, it's immaterial, right, as we discuss because of his sort of medieval preconceptions. Moral goodness is part of it. But the conception isn't necessarily ready-made. So he's assuming a lot when he's asking you to think of something than which nothing greater can be thought. Those are simple words, but the greater there, it's a huge bucket that's holding a lot of information that he would be able to say, well, that is included in the greatness, the omnipotence, the moral excellence, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. This is one way that one could start to question his argument is, is he validly in importing into that idea things that should be there? Is he, is he bringing in anything to that idea that shouldn't be there? So you're right. There's a, there's a lot riding on that greater, especially this idea of existence, which is weird for us to talk about existence as a greatness or something like right, that. Like right. that particular move, I think we can understand it. Like as we were talking yeah. about, it's better to have a good thing exist. And we recognize that. But the way that he talks about it is at the at the very least, it is a strange way from our way of usually talking about things. Your PhD was in philosophy. And so professional philosophers spend a lot of time thinking precisely about how we use language. It seems that just talking, you know, you can have greater mean a bunch of stuff. And I can think of totally normal situations where you have greater mean a bunch of stuff. But if you're presenting a philosophical proof, it does seem either lazy if he's not trying to obscure on purpose to have this word do so much work. If we're just going about our lives, we use language like this. But part of the business of philosophy, and presumably he's trying to do serious philosophy here, is to clarify things by speaking precisely about the terms that we're using. So before we get more into the critique, what happens to this argument? Does it go on to face a critique by the philosophers that follow him? Do other philosophers think this is really cool and pick it up? What's the legacy of Anselm's ontological argument. So it's a very famous argument that despite how old it is, you'll still run into it these days. There are Christians out there who accept it as a valid proof for the existence of God. You'll find it in just philosophy courses as sort of like famous arguments to talk about. Probably one of the most famous uses of it is Rene Descartes in his meditations, which is, if you ever have to do a freshman introductory philosophy course, there's a good chance that you're made to read meditations. Descartes, where you get famous, I think, therefore I am statement and stuff right. like that. He makes use of a version of the ontological argument in there when he's trying to prove God's existence. So there's lots of people who find the argument valid, who find it useful, and then there are others who don't. Okay. So let's talk about other folks who don't. Where should we start with this? Because as we have already been alluding to, there seem to be some problems with, for instance, just the formal argument. By using greater as the word, that's not 
being precise in a way that maybe modern philosophy would expect him to be. And maybe there are other issues that we can cover from our perspective, but are there famous philosophers or theologians who critiqued this perspective? One very prominent argument against it comes from Thomas Aquinas, who is a Catholic philosopher and theologian. He lived roughly a century after Anselm, maybe about 150 years When we look back at the medieval period, Aquinas is one of the central figures of the medieval period. He's very influential. He's very important in Catholic thinking, even to this day. And Aquinas, he's not an atheist by any means. In fact, he offers several famous cosmological arguments for God's existence. But he also critiques Anselm. What does that critique look like? So Anselm, in his argument establishes that when we think about this idea, again, we have this idea, that than which nothing greater can be thought. So Aquinas is going to grant the kind of greater stuff that we were talking about earlier. Aquinas is going to say, it truly establishes that the greatest thing we could think about would include the idea of existence. Uh So it would be worse if it didn't have existence. So we have this idea and we have to include in this idea, the idea of existence. Okay? So, the problem that Aquinas points out, though, is that we're still just talking about the idea. That we're just talking about what all is involved in the idea. We're analyzing an idea, but that doesn't mean that it then corresponds to anything out in reality. It says that this idea includes the idea of existence in it, but that doesn't mean that there is an actual existing thing Uh that corresponds to that idea. So, okay. So Aquinas is saying, Anselm, buddy, I will grant you that existence has to be a part of the greatest thing that you can conceive. Yes. Or to be more exact, something than which nothing greater can be thought. I grant you that existence is a part of that. But that doesn't tell you one way or the other whether this thing actually exists. Exactly. One of them is maybe you could give us some terminology here. I don't know if there's relevant terminology. One is conceptual, right? Anselm is only ever doing conceptual work. He's not actually establishing any premises which would validate the actual existence of this thing that we have the idea of. Right. So Aquinas points out that, you know, it it does establish that about this idea, it's conceptual. And if the thing exists, if we could establish that in the world there exists a thing that is, that corresponds to this idea, that than which nothing greater can be thought, then that thing must exist because of this conceptual connection. So if we establish that there exists in the world something than which nothing greater can be thought, then Anselm's argument shows that it exists. But Aquinas points out, like, at that point, the argument's not needed because we already established it some other way. Right, right. <laughs> so we need a whole we need a whole different thing to actually establish the existence of something that fit this idea. Exactly. Okay. So would you say then that what Aquinas is pointing out is that there's a kind of sleight of hand going on in Anselm that he's trying to get existence out of the conception. And Aquinas is saying, you can talk about conception all day long that doesn't verify the actual existence of a thing one way or the other. Yeah, a kind of sleight of hand or at least a different... It's possible that Anselm has a different to go back to this strange language of this idea existing in my mind Uh it could be that anselm has just a different way of thinking about the existence of ideas Uh than someone like aquinas and Uh 
frankly, than most people who follow Aquinas. <laughs> so I, Anselm might be led the direction he does because of some other presuppositions yeah. he has. So, so I should clarify. When I say sleight of hand, I don't mean necessarily that Anselm is like a magician doing the sleight of hand. It's just that as it happens... I don't know what we would call it otherwise. The argument slides unconsciously from conception into existence. And whether that's sleight of hand where he's doing it on purpose or he just doesn't realize that he's made that jump illegitimately in Aquinas's view, that's happening. Yes, he's making this jump from analyzing the idea of analyzing the conception to suddenly it implying something about reality. Aquinas is quite happy to say the argument is successful as long as all we're doing is analyzing the idea. Right. And if we could go find this thing out in reality, then the argument would work. Yes. And it actually, I don't remember that Aquinas makes this point. It actually might be an interesting point at that point in that it would possibly establish that God's existence is necessary. That if there is a being, God, out there, who does correspond to that than which nothing greater can be thought, if I can establish that, then on Anselm's argument, I might be able to say that existence is necessary to it. This being must exist and cannot not exist. But the problem is, what we thought the argument was doing was establishing the existence of the thing, not saying something about the necessity of its existence. Exactly. The argument was trying to show that from this idea we can demonstrate God's existence. So in simple logical terms, would Aquinas's argument essentially be that Anselm is begging the question? Yes. That in order for the argument that Anselm is making to work, it has to assume what it's trying to prove. Yes, that's what he's doing. Awesome. So now we've talked about Aquinas's famous critique. Let's talk about us as students or teachers here at, as a tutor at Gutenberg College. I don't think we've talked about this on this podcast. I'm just going to take a second to do this. I may have said in passing in the past that, you know, tutor Naomi Reinhold is with me or tutor Chris Swanson is with me. My my mind is blanking there. But uh, the teachers here at Gutenberg College don't go by Professor So-and-so. Their titles are tutor. Could you just talk a little bit, sort of as a, as a little parenthesis here, could you just talk a little bit about why that's you guys' title instead of professor? Yeah, so professor often implies the idea that there's more knowledge and that knowledge is being handed over, passed over to students. Whereas at Gutenberg... Well, I I mean, I don't want to say that the tutors don't know more than the students. That would be a problem. (laughs) But we want to learn alongside the students. We're not just handing over, here, students, here are all the things to think, go think them. But we're interested in helping the students learn to think for themselves. We guide them. We'll give feedback based on our experience, we'll give our own opinions at times, but it's not a view of the educated person, you know, handing down their knowledge to the uneducated person, but of trying to help the student to become educated themselves. And I think another part of that has to do with the fact that the students are interacting with the greatest minds of our civilization, right? That Which, or, to be clear, are not the tutors at Gutenberg College. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> no, that we hope that by reading these great books, students are interacting with at least people who had 
things that were interesting enough that we've kept them around yeah. for a long, long time. So in your role as a facilitator of these ideas, what do you think about Aquinas's critique of Anselm? I myself side with Aquinas. I think Aquinas is right to point out that Anselm is making a mistake, that he is moving from the conceptual to reality outside of the mind. And so I'm not afraid to say that Anselm is wrong there. Yeah. So doesn't that take something out of the arsenal of a theologian as they're trying to talk about the existence of God? Yeah, that's the potential worry, is that I think I felt this more in the past myself, but, you know, you can, if you're a Christian, it kind of feels awkward to say, well, somebody offered this really famous proof for the existence of God, and then you come along and say, well, actually, that didn't prove that God exists. But I think it's really important to do something like that. It's, if, as Christians, we're committed to the truth, but endorsing an idea just because it gets you to the desired outcome is not what you want to do. Like, you want to be willing to say, this argument, I like the conclusion, I'm not trying to call into question whether God exists, but this argument to get there did not, in fact, succeed. Yeah, yeah. I'm very struck by Anselm and by other theologians and philosophers who do these sorts of arguments for the existence of God and so forth, they often start with the qualities of God as their jumping off point for talking about God. And I'm really struck by how God is presented in the Bible. Now, in fairness, I think many of these theologians think that what they're doing is taking an aerial view, right? They're taking a very 50,000-foot picture of what's going on, and then, then they can get down into the details. So I don't want to necessarily ascribe motives that are different than that. But it is very striking that the Bible starts with a story <laughs> about God making the world. It doesn't start with abstract propositions about how God is and then work from there. Yeah, I think that's really important because the Bible does not start off listing God as omnipotent and omniscient and all the other properties, which are keeping my mind at the moment. But right. the kinds of things we can say very clearly about God from the Bible are very, very concrete historical things, like God took the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Right. And God created human beings right and god sent jesus into the world and the whole history of salvation and all of that like right. they're very specific concrete historical facts about right. what god is like well and you look at something like the incident in exodus where moses appeals to god in order for God to forgive the children of Israel. And it's that famous incident where he says, well, you get in this rock and <laughs> my back will pass by. And as he's doing this little parade, God describes himself, right? But it's not, I'm omnipotent, I'm omniscient, I'm omnipresent, these sort of classical theological qualities of God. Rather, they're things like, I'm merciful to the thousandth generation, but the guilty aren't going to go unpunished. You know, these are qualitative moral statements about God, but they're not necessarily, now that we have the term, ontological statements about God. You know, even though he says, tell them I am that I am sent you, right? That seems to be some kind of ontological claim. Like, I exist. I am the one that exists. Something like that. But most of the Bible is really focused on 
that narrative quality of taking actions, right? God is in the story doing things and you can see who he is from what he does. Mm -hmm. Or when you were talking about that, what came to my mind was Isaiah, holy, 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 you know, that's abstract, but it's also not the like philosophically abstract sort of thing. This isn't talking about omnipotence or something, but it's this, religious quality about God. Now, to be fair, I think that it is totally possible to derive some of these qualities, or maybe even all of them, that are discussed by systematic theologies or whatever, but the Bible doesn't go about discussing things in the same way. And and I think that should give us pause as we're sort of thinking about it, because the way that the authors of the Bible thought about God was as a moral actor in the world rather than, you know, something than which nothing greater can be thought. It may be the case, right? if you took all of the data that you have about God from the Bible, that that's actually true, but that's not the explicit things that they're worried about communicating. Yeah. That actually, for those sort of reasons is why I tend to think if you're going to be giving arguments for God's existence, and we can talk more here about what sorts of situations would you want to give such an argument, but When you give such arguments, I tend to find cosmological arguments more compelling because they have to do with concrete aspects of the world. They have to do with looking out at the world and God's actions in the world that are the sorts of things that the Bible focuses on. And you can actually have something approaching cosmological arguments in the Bible. Now, generally, those are in service of some other point, but in Romans, where it says his divine attributes, right? It's escaping me at the moment, but it's the world has been created. So obviously somebody did it. Yeah, no, exactly that in Romans there, it's appealing to, Hey, look at the world. You ought to be able to figure it out. Right. That's a cosmological argument. Right. Right. So let's go back to this question that you were somewhat alluding to, which is, do we, even want proofs like why would we want a proof is there a situation in which we might want a proof what how should we think about that i think one thing that's worth making a distinction between is between a in my mind a proof and an argument that is a proof is going to be something very formal like anselm's (sighs) argument anselm is proceeding very rigorously and despite the fact that We have critiqued some of his elements and critiqued maybe some of his wording could have been vague. It is very rigorous. If you read the paragraph that his argument is in, it's very step-by-step. Here, let me start from this premise and move on to the next thing. So that sort of formal proof like one does in a logic class or that you do when you do geometry if you've done any kind of Euclidean geometry, and if you haven't, you can come to Gutenberg and do it with us. But those sort of formal proofs, in my mind, I think about them different from an argument, as argument is when you are pointing to evidence and trying to find reasons for a conclusion or find reasons for why you believe something. So if we put it that way and ask, do we need a proof for God's existence, my answer is no, because pretty much most of the people that I know don't believe in the existence of God for those sorts of reasons. Uh They're going to point to things like life experience. They can see the way that God has worked in their life. They're going to point to things like the picture in the Bible fits with history, the picture in the Bible fits with how we understand the world. The Bible talks about sin and makes a really big deal about how human beings are not right morally, and that explains the world that we see around us a lot better than a lot of other philosophies out there. Right. So many philosophies are going to say something like, 
oh, people are basically good, or oh, there's just matter and morality doesn't exist, and those don't do as good a job, in my mind, of explaining the world we see around us where there is morality and human beings are really not so good at doing it. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering, one of the things that's striking about what you're pointing out, that the difference between an argument and a proof is a proof implies a kind of certainty yes. to how people interact with it, right? If you had an actual proof of something and it was beyond critique, it would be something that people could know certainly. And it seems like there is a really strong inclination to want that kind of certainty. I mean, among other reasons, because of Descartes, there is a modernist idea that we really shouldn't be believing anything that we're not certain about. But more often than not, as you're saying about folks you know who would argue for the validity of Christianity, they're not working off of things they're certain about. Right, right exactly. And one side comment, this search for certainty, it is very modern, but it is not exclusive to modernity. Sure. If you read something like Augustine's Confessions, he had this same issue. He wanted a proof to know mm -hmm. what he should believe, and part of his working out of coming to Christianity was deciding that he couldn't have that for something like God. But to come back to the point, it's it would be really comforting to have a proof like this. If Anselm's proof worked, it depends on nothing but understanding an idea. Right. Like if this was a knockdown successful argument, this would refute every single atheist in a paragraph. Right. A and your own doubt. Like every right. time you're like, does God really exist? You read this over and it's certain. I can't do anything but think God exists. Right. So like, yeah, if this argument worked, that would give you a lot of ammo in dealing with people you are arguing against if you're a Christian and in arguing with yourself in your own doubts. What do you think the sensible way is to talk about faith and certainty? Faith and reason is brought up as a very common, maybe not antinomy, but you know, something that is intention. So based on what you're saying, how would you relate the idea of argument, right? That's more about lived experiences you've been explaining. How would you relate that idea to faith and how does all of that relate to certainty? Well, thank you for that small question, Gil. <laughs> faith, certainty, argument. I think there is a way of looking at faith that encounters a critique of Anselm, for instance. You know, Aquinas sounds very reasonable. You read other philosophers who are not Christians, who are atheists or what have you, and they have very seemingly reasonable arguments against the proofs of God existence. And that can be really flummoxing for some folks. And one of the responses is to say, well, that's why you need faith is because you can't have certainty. And while I think that statement per se <laughs> might be true, what that person means might not exactly be true. Yeah. So first of all, I would point out that the word that we translate as faith from the Bible can also just be translated as belief. That is... It doesn't have to be a word that only applies to religious matters. So it can be something that I believe, and that is something that I assent to, something that I think, something that I put my trust in. And in my beliefs, I can have reasons for it, and I should have reasons for it. Like, I... I it's that whole examined life is not worth, or yeah. unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah, no, yeah, unexamined life is not worth living. Didn't we talk about that last time? Yes, last yeah. time you were here, we <laughs> talked about that, right? It's part of the reason why you examine your beliefs. 
in part is because not questioning things has all of these detrimental effects that we talked about that Socrates is coming along and highlighting. Yeah. Yes. So having arguments for God's existence, having arguments for why I believe Christianity, having arguments for why the Bible is trustworthy, those are all good things. But that doesn't mean that I have absolute certainty. That that doesn't mean that there aren't other arguments going the other way that I know how to address all the time. Like, there's plenty of arguments, you know, for example, against the Bible that somebody says them and it's not like I immediately have a, well, here's why that's wrong. Like, there, <laughs> there can... Sometimes it's like, well, you know, that's worth thinking about because ultimately our beliefs are based on a whole host of information and a whole host of how we're looking at the world and understanding the world and putting it all together. And that whole complex of things leads to me saying that God exists. It's not one little proof, but it's a whole bunch of evidence all working together that I'm trying to put together. And it's not certain in that sense. I do want to make two qualifications. One is... Certainty can have a a psychological aspect to it as well. That is, I can feel certain about something in that, like, I am very, very convinced and I am not going to change my mind. That, I think, is appropriate to have, definitely, at times. I would say I am certain that God exists in that lighter sense. I am very convinced and do not anticipate changing my mind. It's not certain in the sense that it was proven via Anselm's argument logically. Right. right. And also just about belief... I do think there are sometimes, I think evidence is very important. There are times when maybe there's something in the Bible that I don't understand, and I don't understand why God wants me to do this, but I might say like, well, I believe this is what I need to do, and I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And that's important too. There are times when like, I might believe that the Bible is true, and I need to do what the Bible says, and I don't fully understand it yet. And that's that's appropriate. I should, right. if I think God wants me to do something, I should do it. Right. And that has to do with this whole thing that you were saying earlier about trust. Yes. Right. If there are, in general, many good reasons to trust God or Jesus, and then there's this thing over here that's part of the picture, but I don't really understand that part of the picture. The fact that I trust the rest of the picture means, okay, well, I'm going to go along with this because I trust this whole other thing. Exactly. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I might not be up for reviewing my understanding of what that means, or maybe I've misunderstood it or whatever, but there's okay for there to be pieces that I don't get fully because ultimately I'm trusting this whole picture even if some of the little details are a little vague for me. Right, yeah. I want to, just before we finish up here, I want to point out one, it's not even a story, it's like an incident from the Bible that I've always found so striking. And I remember once I heard about this incident and it was analyzed for me, I started seeing this kind of thing all the time. Moses gets commissioned by God to go back to Egypt. He gets his staff that turns into a snake. And as he's leaving, God says, the way that you're going to know that this is true is that you're going to come back to this mountain. And what's so striking about that is that is not something Moses can point to to other people and be like, hey, guys, (laughs) I came back to this mountain the person that that's going to be the most impactful for is Moses. Moses is going to know. And I think that's very in keeping with the character of God. Again, other examples don't come to mind, but I think there are many, many occasions where God does that sort of thing. He says, here's what's going to happen. And that's not to prove to other people that, God exists or that God is working in the world, but it's for that one person. And sometimes 
the proof that God gives, this isn't really it for anybody but you. And often, as you were saying, people point to things that have happened in their life as part of the reason why they believe things. And so I think that's important in this whole discussion. So given all of what we've talked about, do you think that there could actually be a good proof for the existence of God? I have to admit, I am skeptical of that. For the sort of reasons that we've talked about, as I've defined proof as opposed to argument of this, this logical deduction that must be certain, I've yet to see one that I think succeeds. Not that I've looked at them exhaustively, because frankly, at a certain point, I became less interested in proofs for the existence of God. My younger self really myself before I really embraced Christianity for myself, I was really interested in finding a proof for the existence of God, and it's because I was deep down unsure what I thought about it. Yeah. But in the intervening time when I've had a lot more experience of God working in my life and my own existential commitment to God and all of that, for myself, the idea of a proof has become less interesting. Right. So I haven't looked at them exhaustively. If there was such a thing and it actually worked, I wouldn't want to knock it. But I am more interested in looking at evidence for God's existence and arguments for God's existence than trying to find a, a knockdown proof. Yeah. Well, Brian, hopefully this has been an interesting conversation for our listeners. It's certainly been an interesting conversation for me. If you have comments or questions or highly technical proofs that show beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists, you can email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. Thanks for coming on the show, Brian. Thanks, Gil. And we will be back in a little bit to talk about more ideas and books which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. 